All right, on to the Word. We are in Numbers chapter 13. Numbers chapter 13. I love the story that I'm about to share with you. And we, I know, I feel like we've been in the Old Testament for a long time. And we're not, we weren't planning this, but just God keeps bringing this back. We just finished up a series um, called Restoration on Ezra. We are done with that. Now we're going back in history you know, several hundred years, way back to the beginning of the founding of, of, of the people of Israel. It's an incredible char- char- character study of what it means to be a God follower when the culture is pushing back against you. And I've said this in weeks past, we are increasingly becoming a post-Christian society. And the things that, that, that we believe as a church, as a faith family, they're going to be more and more at odds with the culture around us. So we must determine how do we maintain steadfast faith when the culture is pushing back against us. So we're going to look at a man named Caleb. This is someone who is, is, is able and willing to stand when everybody else, by and large, wants to go the other way. It's like you're swimming in the opposite stream. You know, Caleb really reminds me of, of guys like Dietrich Bonhoeffer. If you're not familiar with him, he was a, a Lutheran pastor in, in Germany during World War II. Um, and he was part of the confessional movement. He was one who, who was committed solely to the authority of Scripture. And he saw what was happening in the culture around him when, when the Nazi party had taken over the government of, of Germany. You know, and, and, and Bonhoeffer was just, you know, was, was willing to take a stand um, that the Word of God had priority over anything. And, of course, he paid a price for it. You know, and so stories like this and, and men like this and women like this, they're, they're, they're examples to me. And I want to look at them and, and say, Lord, help me to become this way. So we're in Exodus 13. Let me tell you a little bit about, uh, about Caleb. First of all, he was a member of the Exodus generation. The Exodus generation were the ones who who God delivered out of Egypt, you know, the ten plagues and the crossing of the Red Sea and all those things, and they were brought into the promised land. Caleb is one of those who was part of that generation. His name means dog or slave, not the, really the best kind of connotation, you know, and, and Caleb is a popular name today, uh, but I don't think a lot of us pay attention, but that's what his name means. He is the son of Jephunneh. The Bible says that he is the son of Jephunneh the Kenizzite. In other words, he is not part of the twelve tribes. He is not by, by ethnicity part of the house of Israel. He's sort of somebody else that has come in, has been following. And he's also a key leader in, um, in the tribe of Judah. Um, the Bible says he's 40 years old, so kind of my age. You know, I like to think of him as, you know, this is you know, a young man, 42. I know, it's kind of my age, Megan, right? I want to round down. I want to round down to the whole thing. So I'm going to be 40-ish until I get to like 49, and then I'll round up. <laughs> So the story in, in, num- in Numbers 13, so Israel has left Exodus, rather they have left Egypt through the Red Sea, Moses is bringing them out through the, the wilderness and they're making their way to the east to the promised land, to the land of Canaan. And in this particular part of the story, they are camped at an oasis called Kadesh Barnea. It's in the Negev Desert, and they're waiting here, and they're sort of right on the precipice of looking sort of across the horizon. They can see the green plains of, of the Promised Land. It's been about one year since they left Egypt. 
a one-year journey of sort of, uh, in many ways, an uphill fight. They've seen some victories, and they've seen some failures along the way. So here they are at the oasis of Kadesh Barnea. Moses sends some spies into the land, a little bit of reconnaissance work. So he calls sort of one from each tribe, and he says, you 12, you need to sort of discreetly make your way into this promised land, in the land of Canaan. Come back and give us a report. Tell us what it's like. We know what God has said, we know what God's promised, but we need to make sure we have what it takes to go in there. So they do, they go, they, they survey the land all the way from in, the, in the north from Rehob down to Hebron, the mountain in the south, and they, they, and they come back and they give this report, and they, they begin to talk about how amazing it is, and they say, guys, you'll never believe this, the land is, the old term is flowing with milk and honey, Right? And that's, you know, that, that means it's just lush and rich and full of provision. But they also discover um, a particular sort of race of, of men, the descendants of Anak, who are apparently just exceedingly large. And they come, they say, it's a great land, hooray, but they say, no way. And it says this, let's go to, um, to 13. I want to read, I'll read a little bit of this. I think it's on the screen behind they came back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the desert of Paran. There they reported to them in the whole assembly and showed them fruit of the land. I'm, I'm, I'm old enough where we didn't have this when I was a kid in Sunday school. We had flannel grams. Anybody old enough to know what flannel grams are? It was a board with flannel on it and you had little cutout things, you'd stick them on there. And I can still remember the st this story and it would, they would have men and they'd have this pole on there and hanging from the pole was like a cluster of grapes about six feet high. I promise, it was like I was amazed by this. I was like, oh my word. You know, so they come back and they're, they're, they're bringing some of this fruit with them. Um, it says this, they, they, gave this, they gave Moses this account. This is what the, they say. We went into the land to which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here's its fruit. But the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. It's not empty. It's not unoccupied. When they get there, they say, this is a great land, but there's a lot of cities with very high walls. Um, it goes on to say this, the Amalekites, we even saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites live in the Negev. The Hittites, Jebusites, and Amorites live in the hill country. And the Canaanites live near the sea along the Jordan. In other words, everywhere we go, somebody else is there. Then Caleb, we're going to read about him. Then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, we should go up and take possession of the land for we can certainly do it. We'll come back to this. 31, but the men who had gone up with him said, we can't attack those people. They are stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land that they had explored. They said, the land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there, all the people, everyone was of a great size. We saw the Nephilim there, the descendants of Anak come from the Nephilim. We seemed, listen to this, we seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. And these 12 are just paralyzed by fear. And they begin to spread this report through all of the people, and all the people begin to sort of pick up on this uh, just rampant fear that's running through. You know, and I think in my life, how many times have I stood right on the edge of God's promise, but I've been paralyzed with fear, afraid to move on, afraid to step forward, and this is where they are. And look, look at some of the things they're saying. 
saying that everybody's big, and we felt like grasshoppers. We felt this insignificant. We felt this way, and I promise you, we know that they see the same thing when they look at us. There's no way that we can do this. And this is, this is a tough place to be in because this is like, this is the whole reason that they've been brought out. They've been work waiting for a year for this. They suffered through all of the plagues of Egypt. They, they trusted Moses. When Moses said, you know, paint the blood on your door because the, the angel of death is coming tonight, we're going to go. They, 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 they made their way with the Egyptian army on their tails. They stood at the Red Sea and said, what do we do? And they watched the seas part. They came in and they, they were hungry and they saw God provide manna and quail and all these things from heaven and water in the middle of the desert. For a year, they've been trusting Moses and trusting Moses and believing what he says. And here they are. And all of a sudden, they're waiting for the doors to be wide open and all of a sudden, sudden they see nothing but obstacles, nothing but high walls and tall people and impossibility, and they're stuck here. Anybody been there? I've been there. I feel like I feel there, there, there are situations in my life where all I can do, I just get fixated on the impossibility, and I can't move past this. And then I begin to doubt. I doubt what God said. Maybe God really didn't say that I'm supposed to move into this place or this opportunity. Maybe it's not the right season for him. Maybe I need to wait until I'm more equipped and more prepared. But Caleb silenced the people before Moses. In other words, they're all grumbling and complaining out loud. And Moses sticks his hand up and he says, quiet, 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 quiet. Gets everybody to be quiet. One voice, one voice says this. He says, we should go up and take possession of the land for we certainly can do it. That's what he says. And they're at a crossroads. You have one voice among many. One voice says, yes, we can. Everyone else says, no, we can't. And then chapter 14 is a pivotal verse in Israel's history. This is the most, the most pivotal verse, I believe, in the entire book of Exodus. Right here determines their fate. And Israel weeps. They begin to complain. I'm not going to read a lot of 14, but they begin to weep and complain to God. God, how could you let this happen? How could we? We, we were better off in captivity. We were better off in Egypt. I miss all the things of Egypt. I miss, oh, the food was so good. Yeah, we were slaves, but it, at least, you know, at least we had a place to lay our head. At least we weren't going to be annihilated. But this, Lord, what have you done? And God is furious with his people. He says, God in his wrath says, I'm going to destroy him and start all over again. And Moses goes and intercedes and says, no, 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 no. God, you can't do that. You made a promise. And God relents. And, and God says this in verse 21 of, of 14. He says, the Lord replied, I have forgiven. They have this long dialogue. It's beautiful. Go through and read it. Verse 20, the Lord replied, I have forgiven them as you asked. So Moses asked for forgiveness on behalf of the people for their failure. God says, I have done that. Nevertheless, as surely as I live and as surely as the glory of the Lord fills the whole earth, not one of the men who saw my glory in the miraculous signs I performed in Egypt and in the desert, but who disobeyed me and tested me ten times, not one of them will ever see the land I promised on oath to their forefathers. No one has treated me with contempt will ever see it. So that's, that's, his, that's, that's judgment then. The Lord says, yeah, I'll forgive you, but you need to know every single one of you, you're going to die in the desert. None of you will inherit the promise. You're too afraid to go in and take it? Fine. Stay where you are. Enjoy this home because this is all you're getting. It says this, but 
Look at verse verse 24. But because my servant Caleb has a different spirit and follows me wholeheartedly, I will bring him into the land he went to, and his descendants will inherit it. And I can be honest with you, I don't, I don't know how I would feel if I hear this, if I'm Caleb and I hear these words. I mean, I look around, I look at my brothers, I look at my friends, I look at the people that I've journeyed with for a year and I've realized that they're being left behind and God is telling me that I'm moving forward. But he alone is, 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 he alone is, is the one that God has said you're moving forward. And he says this, really, he has a different spirit. The word is acher. I can't pronounce it, I'm not a Hebrew scholar, but it's kind of like you have to clear your throat when you're saying it, acher, Right? And it means different. It, it, means, it means another or foreign. You can sort of enter, in, insert any of those words in there. Caleb has a different kind of spirit. He has another. He has a foreign kind of spirit. There's something unique about him that's not like the others. And God could have used a different word. God could have said, my servant Caleb who has a courageous spirit. That would make sense to me because Caleb did have courage. You know, he could have said, my, my servant Caleb has an obedient spirit, or my servant Caleb has a righteous spirit. Any of those would have worked, but he chose this unique word, different. And I'm looking at that saying, what, what does that mean? What does that mean? What does it mean for Caleb to be different of, of, among all these others, and how can I then apply this to myself? You know, and when I was growing up in middle school, I was often accused of being different. It wasn't a good thing, you know? Usually if somebody said, man, that kid is different than the rest, that's not a good thing. They said that about me when I was like in eighth grade or ninth grade. But this is a good thing. What God says, it's a good thing. There's something unique about him. Let me read this to you. This is interesting. This is a, this is a, a, a second century letter written to a guy named Diognetus. I know it's going to bless your heart. Calm down. Calm down. Nothing like second century letters to really get you fired up. Chuck's excited about this. You're already fired up. Listen to this. So this is a, this is a letter to Diognetus. We don't really know who the author is. But the author is writing to his friend in the, somewhere in the Roman Empire who's not a Christian. He's writing to explain to Diognetus really who and what are these people called Christians. And this friend apparently has no idea. And this, this guy, Diognetus, has no idea. And the one who writing the letter wants to explain. This is what he says about him. He says, Christians are indistinguishable from other men, either by nationality, language, or customs. They do not inhabit separate cities of their own or speak a strange dialect or follow some outlandish way of life. Their teaching is not based on reveries inspired by the curiosity of men. Unlike some other people, they champion no purely human doctrine. With regard to dress, food, and manner of life in general, they follow the customs of whatever city they happen to be living in, whether it's Greek or foreign. In other words, these Christians, you can't tell by looking at them. They don't talk differently. They don't look differently. They don't smell differently. They just, they're, they're mixed in all, with all of us. He says this, and yet there's something extraordinary about their lives. They live in their own countries as though they were only passing through. This from the second century. They play their full role as citizens, but labor under all of the disabilities as aliens. Any country can be their homeland, but for them, their homeland, wherever it may be, is a foreign country. Like others, they marry and have children, but they do not not expose them. In other words, they don't cast their children out into the street unwanted and leave them to die. They share their meals, but not their wives. 
And that's astonishing to the reader of this letter and that, that Roman culture. What do you mean they don't share their wives? Who ever heard of such a thing? They live in the flesh but are not governed by the desires of the flesh. They pass their days upon earth but are citizens of heaven. As if to say, Diognetus, these Christians are so different than any person you've ever met. No one is like them. They're impossible to explain fully. They look like you and I. They act like you and I. But in, the other, in other senses, they are nothing like you and I. That's the difference. And there's a word in the Bible that describes God more than any other word. Anybody want to guess what that is? Holy. A lot of words describe God. He's just. He's love right? He is a consuming fire and all these things, but there's one that's repeatedly used again and again and again. That word is holy. God is holy. And this, and this is what the angels right now in heaven are saying about God night and day, continually, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. They say that because that's just who God is. And that's, that's the simplest understanding. And let me drink some water one second. That's the simplest way to understand what holy means. Holy doesn't necessarily mean good or pure or kind. Holy means different. It means set apart. When we say God is holy, we mean there is nothing like him in all of reality. No one on earth can compare to who God is. There is no other God. God is like if this were like, the, you know, like a, um, a, a bullet list, A, B, C. There's an A, but there is no B and C. God is number one on the list, and there is no number two, three, and four. He stands alone all by himself. And the Bible says this is who God is, the Holy One of Israel. And not only is he, but he also says this is how my people are to be as well. You are to be for me a holy nation. And I think we've, you know, somewhere along the way, I think we in the truth, we've lost that. We don't want to be different. We want to be so much like the world. We want to be accepted. We want to be loved. I, don't, I, I get that. I want to be loved. I want to be thought well of. I don't want people to throw stones at me whenever I go out on the street. I want to be, you know, you know, well respected in my community. But God calls us to be radically different from the systems of the world. Radically different from the cultures around us that are pushing in. And I believe that it's, it's through that aligning ourselves with God's character this is how we embrace the fullnesses of his promise. We have to have a different spirit. And a year ago, when we were talking and dreaming about, about this church, we had discussions about, you know, what's going to make our church unique? What's going to make it set apart? And there's the tendency, especially in the sort of even, in, in the evangelical culture, we want our churches to be novel like, what clever thing can we do to grow? What clever thing can we do to get attention? You know, what makes us different than Southland? Oh, or, you know, we're going to do, you know, um, whatever. We're going to have a better worship band, or we're going to meet in a movie theater. That's going to be cool. That's going to make us different, right? We're not going to start our services at 10 o'clock. We're going to start our services at 10.05, and we're going to call this, this is, uh, you know, Generation 10.05. And we wrestled with this. of like, okay, what... Why do we need another church? And I, I want it to be different. But I, I, at the time, I really felt like the Lord is saying, the only difference that you need to have is pursuing holiness in your heart and in your life. That's what makes you different easily. He said this to me. 
Let your church be a holy church. Let it be set apart. Let it be different. Not so much in programming and all this other stuff, but just in, in who we align ourselves with and who we're chasing after. So how is Caleb different? Let me give you three ways that he is standing strong in a culture of faithful, faithlessness. I want to put my hands in my pocket. It may, I may not be able to speak. I feel like I'm waving my arms too much. This is tough, all right? See if I can talk with my hands in my pockets. I love you guys. This is funny. How is Caleb different? What does he do that's so unique? First thing is this, is he maintains God's perspective. And that's essential right at the very beginning. I choose to see things not as they appear to be, but as God says they are. Maintain God's perspective. Look at verse 14, 9. He says this, do not rebel against the Lord. It's, uh, this is what... This is, what, um, this is what they say, Caleb and Joshua. Those are the only two, by the way. Caleb and Joshua are the only two that come back with a good report. And the writer of this doesn't include Joshua, but that's, it's okay because we know that Joshua is included in this. Joshua and Caleb comes back and they stand up and they say, the land we passed through and explored is exceedingly good. It's awesome. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and will give it to us. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not be afraid of the people of the land because we will swallow them up. This is the grasshopper speaking to the giant. We're going to swallow you up. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. That's God's perspective. They've not seen the walls come down yet. They've not seen the giants fall, but they know resolutely in their hearts, God is with us. Their strength is gone. Their protection is gone. Maintain God's perspective. How do you do that? Part of that is just remembering your history. Remember what God's done. Think about that. Think about what God's done all in your life and in the life of the, in life of the people here. For Israel, God's done incredible things in the last year. For crying out loud, he did 10 supernatural plagues to deliver them where they've been in slavery for 400 years. And he's provided supernatural food in the, in, in the desert. Manna and quail and water from a rock. He has cast off their enemies. He has met them with a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Do you not remember what God has done just in the seasons past? Don't forget, maintain God's perspective. Remember your mission. What business are you to be about? The call to be a people. And, and, and part of this also is notice that Caleb never mentions the giants. He doesn't even bring that up. He doesn't even say anything about it. He's not concerned with that at all. It's, not, it's, it's a non-issue for him. He's focusing on the promise of what God has said to do. So that's one thing is maintain God's, God's perspective. And we've been trying to do that. We have a notebook. Meg and I have one for our life that we started of God's faithfulness in specific ways, you know, all the way down to like, you know, we were young and poor and needed money and God sent 20 bucks for groceries our way, those kind of things. And we have one for our church. We've got a notebook that we've started writing in prophetic words and significant events and promises that God has done because we want, during difficult times, we're going to read back through that to remind ourselves of God's perspective. So that's the first thing. The second way that we can be different that we can stay strong in a culture of faithfulness is to persevere through difficulty. Stick with it. 
When you choose to be different, you choose a difficult road. You're taking the hard way. If you want to be different, it's going to be tough, and you're going to get hurt and burned. 14 verse 10 says, Then all the congregation said to stone them with stones. Sounds like some board meetings I've been in. Man, reaching for chairs, about to beat me down. But in verse 25, the most painful thing is what God says to the people. He says this, he says, Now, since the Amalekites and the Canaanites dwell in the valleys, turn around and set out for the wilderness. Everybody except Caleb. No, it doesn't say that. Caleb is included. Caleb turns around. Caleb doesn't get the easy way. Caleb is forced to wander in the wilderness 40 years because of something he didn't do. Sometimes having a different spirit means you go through some things that you don't deserve. Is it unfair? You bet it is. Is it tempting to get angry at God? You bet it is. But a different spirit perseveres through difficulty. It says, I know what God has said. I'm going to see it through. Third thing is this. A different spirit claims God's promises. And I love the end of this story. Because God says this. Verse 23, not one of them will ever see the land I promise on oath to their forefathers. No one who has treated me with contempt will ever see it. But because my servant Caleb has a different spirit and follows me wholeheartedly, I'll bring him into the land he went to, and his descendants will inherit it. There's a promise then. So now fast forward one year, two years, three years, five years, ten years. 15 years, 20, 25, 30, 40 years now. Caleb is no longer 40. Caleb is now 80 years old. His life has doubled. A young man then, an older man now. And that generation has died out. He and Joshua are the only ones that still remain. And in Deuteronomy, God has given these words to Moses. This is just is about Moses is about to die. Moses himself is not able to go into the promised land either because of some failures that he did. And he reminds him in Deuteronomy 1, 34, I'll read this. When the Lord heard what you said, he's talking to this generation, he was angry and solemnly swore, not a man of this evil generation shall see the good land I swore to give your forefathers, except Caleb, son of Jephunneh. He will see it. Listen to the promise. He will see it, and I will give him and his descendants the land he set his feet on. Because he followed the Lord wholeheartedly. Jump to Joshua 14. In Joshua 14 now, that... That time has come. They've moved over. They've crossed over the Jordan. They've entered into the land. They have taken Jericho. Jericho has fallen. They're claiming God's promises. 
And in Joshua 14, beginning in verse 2, this is Caleb, though. Caleb is now waiting for this. He's been waiting now for so long. Another five years have passed. Now he's 85 years old. And Caleb says this in verse 14, of jo- or, or rather Joshua 14, verse 10. And now behold, the Lord has kept me alive, just as he said, these 45 years since the time that the Lord spoke his word to Moses while Israel walked in the wilderness. And now look, I am this day 85 years old. I am still as strong today as I was in the day that Moses sent me. My strength now is as my strength was then for war and for coming and going. It's like, it's like Caleb is saying, guys, I'm, look, I've been doing push-ups every day for 45 years. I've been running 10 miles a day for 45 years waiting for this. He says, now give me this hill country of which the Lord spoke on that day. It's like he's been dreaming of this. His feet touched the mountain that he wanted. Twelve of them went out. Twelve of them got to walk on the promised land for themselves. And you can just imagine that Caleb, 45 years ago, was walking and looking to himself going, this is all ours. This is all ours. I can't believe what God's going to do. That wall's going to come down. That wall's going to come down. And he sees the hill country that he wants. And he thinks to himself, what if I could be there? What if I could build my house, plant my vineyards, raise my children right here in this hill country? And he makes a note, in, I, I don't know, I imagine, he makes a little note in his journal. He says, all right, this is the coordinates of that hill. This is mine. All you 12, all you 11 dibs on this place. And he walks around and he comes back. Now, 45 years later, he has marked it in his mind. I want that place. Now, give me this hill country of which the Lord spoke on that day. For you heard on that day how the Anakim were there with great fortified cities. It may be that the Lord will be with me and I shall drive them out, just as the Lord said. He's going to do it himself. I'm not going to wait on you. I'm 85 years old. I'm ready to go. I'm going to take that. I don't need help from anybody. I'm going to drive them out. And he's the only individual, the only individual in Scripture that gets to handpick his portion of the promised land. No one else gets that. The tribes are all divided up. This tribe gets this place, this tribe gets that place, but only Caleb gets to handpick where he wants to be. Hmm. Claims God's promises. Okay, so that's the story. God wants to do some, I know this, I know he is doing and he wants to do some incredible things, not only in us as a church, and we're seeing that, but in you individually and in your families individually. There's some amazing promises that wait and we're on the breakthrough of many of those. But I'm believing that something that's required is to be a different kind of people, to be a different kind of church, to be a different kind of husband, a different kind of wife. To have, to have God's faithfulness. The Bible says this about Caleb. says he followed me fully. He followed me fully. Brian, come on up, wherever you are. My fear is that many in the church are, we're, we're, we're following, but we're not following fully. There's a story of a, of a Methodist missionary 
actually a graduate of Asbury University. His name was E. Stanley Jones. He was a well-known, actually in, in the 30s and 40s and 50s, he was so well-known in his missions work in India that he and Gandhi were, were, were friends and he was able to sort of have some influence on Gandhi and was influenced likewise. But Jones tells a story. He says that one day in India, I was sort of giving some teaching and giving a Bible, a Bible study and somebody comes up to him and says, um, a particular Indian native, he says, Mr. Jones, just as Jesus and the Bible have saved you, so has Krishna saved me. Krishna, of course, being one of the many gods of the Indian pantheon. The individual comes up and says, just like God in the Bible saved you, I'm saved as well, Mr. Jones. Krishna has saved me too. And Jones says, that's, that's, that's wonderful. You have come and you've studied the Bible with us. And, he says, and Jones says, I want you to come and do something with us now. Now that we've studied the Bible, we're going to do something else. We're going to be going to, uh, to, to uh, an outpost where some of the outcasts of Indian civilization, the, un the untouchables live. And we're going to take our Bible study group. We're going to clean the latrines for the outcast. Come and join us. And the, the man smiles and shakes his head. He says, oh, no. He says, oh, no, Sahib, I am saved, but I am not that saved. Man, God, God's looking for people that are just saying, Lord, <laughs> save me all the way, all the way to the difficult places. Don't let me be partial or a little bit or following you a little bit. Lord, let me be wholeheartedly given to you. So that, that, I guess that's my challenge for you is, is this, is just, you know, how different are you? How different am I? Is God asking us to press in even more, even to say a little bit more, yielding? Is there part of us that is just still holding on and saying, oh, no, I can't step in. I can't move in. I can't move into the promises, God, because I don't trust you and I don't believe you and I'm holding back because I'm uh, it just whatever it is. And God is saying, oh, no, I need a wholehearted faith, a wholehearted commitment. Have a different spirit about you. And, and the Lord says, if, you, if there's a different spirit about you, God says the fullness of the promises are there. So I, listen, I don't, I don't have an invitation really apart from just saying, ask the Father, do more. Do more in your heart. Refine our hearts more than they have been. And if you've really never even been really, you know, committed in following after God with the Lord. If this whole thing is new to you, look, this is the day for you then. This is the day for you to get in and say, Lord, I'm aligning myself with the work that you're doing. I'm aligning myself with your kingdom. I'm aligning myself with the promises that you have for us. Maybe that's your day today. I don't know. Hey, stand up. I'm going to pray for us. We're going to sing again. And then um, we're going to have, I'm going to kind of go over the words of knowledge and some ministry time here at the end. All right. 